This is the Lost Start of Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Start of Communication podcast. Today we have with us Brendan Kumarasamy from Master Talk, which is a YouTube channel focused on public speaking and communication tips. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for having me, you too. Thanks for being here. So do you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and your background? Yeah, for sure. So like you mentioned, uh, Trisha, I'm the founder of Master Talk, which is a YouTube channel I started to help the world master communication and public speaking. How I got started was when I was in university, I used to do these things called case competitions. So think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys my age were, you know, watching football games, eating chicken wings or something. I still ate the same junk food as them, but clearly I'm not built for sports, as you probably guess. So instead of watching or playing sports, I watched other people give presentations. And that was my life for three years. I did a bunch of business competitions, presented over 500 times in three years, coached dozens of university students on public speaking. And then when I got into corporate America slash Canada, I guess I'm based there, I just asked myself what I could do to make an impact. And I realized after I graduated that a lot of the communication information on the platform stunk. You got a lot of terrible advice. So I started making videos in my mother's basement. One thing led to another and I took production a lot more seriously. And here we are today. That's amazing. So I, I'm in the field of people who are terrified to give public presentations and talk, um, publicly. So what led you, I know you said you weren't into sports, you were into this. What do you think fostered that in you? Yeah, I think, I think it's more about like the, the desire to just do great things. So for example, I guess our origin story was when I was five years old, my parents sent me to French school because in Montreal, for those who don't know, it's one of the few cities in the world where you actually need to know how to speak multiple languages to do business or just communicate because half the population speaks French and the other half speaks English and most of us are bilingual or trilingual. But I didn't speak a word of French. Right? So when I went to, when I went to you know, my education system in general, not only was I uncomfortable with presentations in, in, like in, like as a whole, but I was presenting in a language I didn't even know. So when I was in grade two, four, or six, I would just go like, uh, bonjour. So public speaking is actually something I hated my whole life, Molly. It's just what happened was I, I, was, you know, I grew up in poverty and I wanted to do well for, for my family and the people around me. So I wanted to get a great job. You know, so I went to business school. You know, my dream was to be a management consultant, which is the job I currently have. And to get that job, you need to be extremely good at presentations. So I just did a lot of case competitions and luckily landed that. So that's where the passion came from. Great. So did you feel like, okay, so it was more of a drive to do something based on an initial, like, I want to make it to this point in life. Do you feel like this is naturally who you are? Like when you decided upon this path where you're like, oh, that's perfect because that's who I already am. You know what I mean? Is that something that you feel like meshes perfectly or did you feel like you had to work a lot at it? Right. Definitely a mix of the two. I I think a good way of of explaining this in a way that makes sense is I've always believed that decisions are much more important than passions because I think passions are general, they're vague. And if everyone knew the answer to what you're passionate about, we wouldn't be asking the question. But unfortunately for all of us, for most of us, we don't know what that is, right? So for me, it was, what's the next move? So when I was 12, 
I made the decision to be an accountant because I was good at math and I was terrible at everything else. Like I was a math wizard, but every other subject I would just flunk. So I just said, well, I might as well do something math related. So I went to, I went to do accounting. I was good at it. And then after I joined business school, I said, what are these case competition things? So it's different from debate in the sense that these competitions are where you present business problems and solutions to executives. So you're like 20 and you're presenting to the senior vice president of Walmart and you're just there like, what am I doing here? But anyways, it wasn't really, I w- it was meant for me. It was more like, I want this career. How do I reverse engineer that? And then in that process, case competitions went from something I wanted to tick off a box to this crazy obsession. So I think that's basically how I thought of it. And then after I got the job, I just realized that I was the youngest speech coach in the world and just said, oh, wait a minute, I can like make videos on this thing. And that's how it led to MasterTalk. So when you're working with people on this, because I also teach public speaking, so I'm a speech coach as well. And for me, public speaking didn't come particularly naturally. I didn't set out to be a speech coach. I'm a speech pathologist, actually, but then it just sort of long sequence of events led me to where I am now. But in the beginning, I had to do a lot of work on overcoming the public speaking anxiety. So I'm just curious with your clients and in your videos, are you primarily helping people overcome speech anxiety or is it more about delivery tactics or a combination of the two? Yes. So the goal with Master Talk, like my ultimate vision, is to do what Dale Carnegie wasn't able to do in his lifetime. Because the issue with Dale's work is he was born in the wrong time period of history. You know, he has a great book, but he doesn't have any videos about him because obviously YouTube didn't exist. He didn't have any high quality ways of, we don't even know how he sounds like. Whereas in this era, you know, I believe that the best, the best person in the world to coach public speaking who wants to do it can, has the ability to democratize the world's information. So that's my goal with the channel, essentially. So I cover A to Z on public speaking, so feel free. I can like talk about fear if you want me to or anything. Sure. Well, what would you say is the, the biggest hurdle that your clients face and how do you help them overcome that? Yeah, for sure. So let's break this down, right? You know, we talk to people around the world, right? New Zealand, Japan, India, United States, you name it. We're all scared of public speaking, but we don't really understand why. So I thought I'd shine some light there. The question we need to ask ourselves is where do we give most of our presentations? Because that's where the answer probably lies. And for most of the human population, the answer is school, high school, college, Mm. university. And in those environments, three things happen. Number one, you never get to pick the topic. Or if you do, it's generally something you're not passionate about. So we're all sitting in high school together. History teacher comes up to us and says, you know, everyone, I want you to do a presentation on the Renaissance. And you're just sitting there like, what is this thing? And you find (laughs) out that it's a time period history, not a fruit. And then you give a presentation on it. Number two, students are in the class, don't listen to you and don't care about you. The subject, I mean. Not you as a person. They love you as a person. We're all great people. That's not the issue. The issue is school is one of the few presentation environments in the world where you're presenting to people who are also presenting after you. So let's say you're sitting in a room, right, filled with 30 students, and you're standing there. You're nervous, and nobody's listening to you. You think it's because you're a terrible speaker. But that's not true. It's because I'm sitting in the room thinking, crap, i got to go in 10 minutes and present. Number three, 
Teachers are too stressed to coach us. Teachers are very well-educated, very well-intentioned. But if you got 50 students in a classroom and you got two classes to go through all of them, they're not going to sit you both down and say, hey, Molly, Tricia, let's talk about your presentation skills for 10 minutes. So let's repeat that. You never get to pick the topic in 100% of the presentations you give. And if you do, it's not something you actually care about. You're presenting to students who don't care about your subject and are worried about their own presentation. And you're presenting to teachers who are too stressed to coach you. And this behavior gets perpetuated in every subject. English, math, sciences, languages, gym, music, on and on and on and on. We're taught to believe that public speaking is a chore. It's a responsibility. If we're at school, it's tied to a grade. If we're at work, it's tied to an outcome. And if we fail at any part of that journey, we get punished for it. Whether it's a lower grade or whether it's a promotion that we don't get. So how do we fix this? We fix this by understanding the, the, the remedy, which is why is introverted 16-year-old Julia, why does she like public speaking and does theater? The reason is not because Julia is extroverted. The reason is because Julia's perception of public speaking is different. She sees public speaking as a way to make a difference, as a way to share an idea, as a way to teach a lesson. So the summary here is the way to crush your fear of public speaking is to realize that the fear is not your fault, but rather the system in which you were taught the skill. That's mind-blowing to me, honestly, because it is so true. Like when we are younger and we are in school, that's that's how we're all introduced to this idea of public speaking. And I am definitely in that school of thought is it is terrifying. And and I honestly haven't had the opportunity I haven't taken any opportunities. I, I probably have been presented with opportunities. I haven't taken any opportunities to do any public speaking on subjects that I'm passionate about. Cause you're right after school, now it's work. And I do, you know, the assigned monthly, you know, Molly, give a presentation on the conference you went to. And you're like, yeah, it was okay. I guess I'll have to do it. But there has never been a passion under me to give that talk. So that's really interesting. Well, I would argue that even what we're doing now is a form of public speaking. And so, Molly, if the fact that you're not terrified every episode we do shows that it's because you're interested in what we're talking about. And so, in a way, it's kind of already reframed it for you when you did that subconsciously. You didn't have to sit down and think like, okay, I'm making a difference. Maybe in the beginning, if it was a little nerve-wracking, but then over time, you learn this is, I'm doing this for a reason, and it's not unsafe. And it's a little different, obviously, because we're recording instead of doing something live. But yes, very good points, Brendan. Of course, my pleasure. So how do you suggest a person then defeat this, you know, fear in themselves without like, either when they're still in school or after school, what kind of are the next steps? Right. So, so the remedy, in my opinion, is what I call the repeatable presentation. So let's think about any skill. Piano is a good example I like to use. We have two options when we learn piano. Number one is try a bunch of different songs, you know, like 10, 15 of them, and hope for the best. And if you're Mozart, that's going to work really well. But we're probably not Mozart, especially not me, so that's not going to work. Option two is saying, you know what? What's my favorite song? What song do I actually really want to play on piano? So you do, you know, 10, 15, 20 tries at it. You get the hang of it. And you don't practice any other song. 
So when you go to that black tie event, that gala, or some other event where there just happens to be a piano there, and you start playing that one song that you know, everyone is going to come up to you and go, wow, Trisha, you're such an amazing pianist. And you're just sitting there like, well, I know one song, but sure. <laughs> but it gives you that ego boost, that confidence to say, well, if I can get this one song right, I'm already getting the validation. Because we all need validation, a bit of it, obviously, not too much. We use it to then master the other songs and we get better at piano. We apply this logic for every skill in the world, pretty much. Sports, dancing, podcasting, but we don't do it in public speaking. Let's say it's Wednesday and, you know, client, boss, teacher comes up to us and says, Molly, Trisha, I need a presentation for Friday. And you're just there like, okay, it looks like I'm not talking to my family for two days and I have to figure this thing out. So, Spend 10, 15 hours, you get the presentation together. It's Friday, you put all the effort, you present it, then you take the presentation you work so hard to give, you crush it, throw it in the garbage, move on to the next one. And that's the issue. You are not learning from the individual presentation. We keep switching. Whereas what the best speakers in the world do is they only present one or two things hundreds of times. Gary Vaynerchuk is a good example I like to use. He gets paid, what, $125,000 a speech? And it's been the same speech for the past 13 years, which is as follows. Hey, guys. Yeah, so I'm from the Soviet Union, landed in the States. You guys got any questions for me? That's it. <laughs> and that's why he executes so well. But I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure you two are thinking the same thing. If Julie, I like using Julie as a name. She doesn't exist. She's just someone. If Julie works at a bank nine to five, what's repeatable about that, right? I always get that a lot. Like, oh, like, but like uh, my project updates keep changing. What I asked Julie is what I want to ask both of you in the audience, which is what do you do outside of work? And Julia might just say, I don't know. Uh, I'm a gold medalist at marathons. I, you know, parent my kids. She's not 16 anymore in this situation. I just want to clarify that. And the third thing is, you know, maybe she likes cooking. So what I tell Julia that will surprise her is that you just gave me three repeatable presentations. And then she looks at me like, what are you talking about? I'm saying, talk about your lessons, the journey that you spent running marathons. What you learned from it? I want to learn. Number two, parenting tips. I'm going to have kids eventually. I'd love to get your tips on that. Number three, recipes. What are some of the easy, healthy recipes you have to share with the world? All it takes is for one person to come up to Julia and say, Hey, Julia, I really liked your marathons presentation. I went for a run this morning. Thanks for your help. And that what happens is Julia gets addicted to public speaking. Then she's going to say, how do I present this in front of 10 people, 100 people? And then she's off to the races. So you're saying if, let's say, Julia was told on Friday you have to give a speech about your banking job, what does she take from that then? Like, she can't just give a speech about a marathon at her Absolutely. So, so the way that this trends, and I love the question, is how she needs to think about it. Is she still gives the same banking presentation, and to be frank, it's still going to be just as bad as it was at the beginning. But the difference is when she's presenting the marathon presentation outside of work, her confidence as a speaker skyrockets, and then the skills that she gets from that presentation gets reapplied back into her banking presentation. Because in her banking presentation, if her communication skills increase by only 10 or 20%, she's already in the top 5 to 10% of her industry in terms of a speaker. So the way that I see a good way to summarize that thought is think in extremes and pull from the extremes to make all areas of communication better. 
right? Because communication is like a balance. If you're good at one thing, you suddenly become at all areas. And the best way to exponentially grow your speaking skills is to focus on one passion thing or one passion problem that solves something for somebody else and then use the skills that you accumulated from that experience back into every other presentation. So you're saying she should just find people that she knows to give this marathon presentation to say, hey, friends, can we get together on Friday and you can listen to my speech? Absolutely. Or she's saying do it more casually, like over dinner with a friend or something. I would say both. Uh, just because I teach what I preach. So I did the same thing when I was probably 20 or 21 years old. I used to give master talk presentations to what, two people? Because those are the two people that would listen to me. Not because of the content, they didn't really care about public speaking, it was more just about <laughs> me. And then over time, you know, then I started coaching CEOs a couple of years after that, and I started presenting for hundreds of people, but it didn't start that way by any means. I just got slowly addicted. And then when I started presenting it in corporate, like in the corporate world, not as a speaker, but as an employee of the corporate world, I was just a really good presenter, even if I didn't like the topic that I was presenting, because of the skills that I got from the stuff that actually interested me. So when you say repeat and repeat and practice, my worry for myself would be I'm practicing the wrong thing. So I'm doing this thing that um, I'm presenting, but I'm actually practicing something and ingraining this bad habit into my presentations. So what are some things that you recommend people have in their presentations and what makes a presentation strong? Right. So I'm a bit different than most speech coaches. I'm very 80-20 in the sense of if you just apply this piece of feedback, I'm confident based on just the clients I've coached over the years that you're minimally in the top 10%. I think the next conversation to have is how do you go from 10 to 1%, which is thinking about all of the things that you just mentioned. So I think the next thing to do to coach in the right way without investing in a speech coach, because I only recommend that for people who like have really big goals, like who have like, you know, purpose-driven entrepreneurs and see the ROI there. But I think one easy way that I've implemented is I record myself speak, and I still do that today. I send it to 25 people, but I do not ask for feedback because I'm only going to get general, you know, advice that's not going to help me. I ask for time-stamped feedback. So what that means is Isabella, who's looking at my video, won't say, this was good, this was bad. She goes, go to 3 minute 21. So then I go to 3 minute 21. Then she goes, why do you look depressed if you're talking about something that's really exciting? But if 25 people are time stamping you like that, it's excruciatingly painful, but also excruciatingly effective. So I can go from knowing nothing about communication to in four weeks just just getting mind-blowing results. And then after that, if you want to tweak from 5% to 1%, then I would invest in a speech coach or something like that. But I think that the general idea is simple. Extreme people get extreme results. You know, Don't you find it all odd that I started a communication channel on public speaking when at the age of 22? Like That makes no sense. So how did I get there? Why do CEOs coach me? I mean, trust me. It's because I've presented probably 900 times as of this recording. Right? I'm just obsessive with the craft. And I don't recommend that for everybody. But I think there's a lot of easy, quick ways that we can go through some other exercises and how you can spiral that growth really quickly. I have a quick question. It's kind of off topic, but kind of on topic. So sure. you're saying that 
So I think people have this idea in their brain of public speaking as like, I am at a podium, there is a group of 900 people in front of me, and I am speaking my truth to them. But I still get nervous in parties when I'm in a group of five people, and I'm trying to tell some a story in the middle of my story. I will get to like the middle part and I know it's like the meaty part. That's kind of like, I don't know. I'd rush through the middle part and just get to the end. And then my story doesn't make sense. And everyone's like, okay, Molly, cool. Just because I got so nervous in that moment when everyone's looking at me, everyone being five people in a very casual party. Right. So when you're talking about this public speaking, are you referring solely to like those more large audience per speaks speaks? Ooh. <laughs> discussions or um, talks, or are you talking more about like these more low key ones? You, you know, side note that I find hilarious is when speech coaches interview each other, we're all kind of self-conscious about how everyone is speaking because oh. we feel like we're being coached as we're talking. So don't worry about it. Pretty easy. Coach. But it is the, the idea is the way that I think about it is public speaking is a conversation. Public speaking is everything. Public speaking is writing a letter to your mother. Public speaking is speaking on a stage. Public speaking is telling a 10-year-old that she can be a great speaker too someday. And I think by free-framing public speaking from being on a stage, which I agree is intimidating, even for someone like me, into a coffee conversation, it's much easier to digest. And one example I give is when I coach pace. So we all know what pace is, how quickly you talk, how slowly you speak. But the way that I see it is that most people visualize public speaking the way that you described it, Molly, in the sense that, you know, it's this big stage thing. So the, their perception of public speaking is how do I get in this thing and how do I get out of it as quickly as possible versus if you were having a long dinner with one of your friends that you haven't seen in many years, are you going to try and bullet out of that dinner as quickly as possible? No, you're going to sit there. You're going to sip your coffee and you're going to enjoy the moment enjoy the meal that you're having with the other person. And if we start using that in our presentations, our pace will automatically go down because we'll start to compare public speaking to that conversation with our loved ones or our friends rather than uh, the sprint that we try and make it. Interesting. And I feel like that also relates back to your initial point of in school when there's always like this timestamp, make sure that your presentation is five minutes long or something like that. So that either causes this pressure to make it really fast or slow down and make it like really extended. So you fill up that whole time. That's interesting. Of course. One thing I'll add to that, to your question, Molly, of getting nervous, even if you're at a party. So I'm definitely of the camp that, as Brendan mentioned, all forms of communication are public speaking, essentially. And public speaking anxiety is really a form of social anxiety. And so what I would say in your case, Molly, and what I do with my clients to combat that situation is a lot of games and exercises where you're going to be put on the spot and you have to navigate staying calm in that moment. So I, my philosophy is a little bit different from Brendan's, which is great because obviously all speech coaches shouldn't be the same, but I think anyone, even if you don't give big presentations, even if you're not an entrepreneur can benefit from working with a speech coach, because at least for me, the focus of my sessions is not necessarily, okay, here, give this presentation. It's how do we be more authentically ourselves in any environment? And a huge part of that is small talk at parties. And what I found is that once you master the most difficult thing, which is 
public speaking in the more traditional sense of, okay, I can do this in front of a large audience, then telling a story at a party won't feel so intimidating. It's going to be a walk in the park compared to these other skills that you've already mastered. In addition to that, Molly, I know you used to take improv. So things like that, that's another way, theater, acting, anything that puts you in a situation where you have to think on your feet and stay calm in that moment is going to be helpful for something like nerves on the spot at a party or in a presentation. I do feel like when I took improv, I was way more confident in just those smaller and quote unquote smaller interactions in those group settings, telling stories, because you're right. It does make you kind of think on your feet. And in those improv sessions, I liked it because I felt like I was a character and I can do anything and it took me out of my own brain. So that I, I do, I do remember that. And I really did love that. But yeah, I think you're right. Like all of these skills are important because we have to do it every day, all of the time, whether we think about it or not, like public presentations. When I think about it in the, in that sense, I'd never do public presentations, but I do talk to people all day long, all of the time. (laughs) So that's such an interesting way to reframe it. So Brendan, are you, I know you have this YouTube channel. Do you work often with private clients or are you mostly giving speaking engagements? What does life look like for you now that we're in the middle of a pandemic and you probably aren't taking the stage in front of a bunch of people when that's not really a thing? Yeah, no, for sure. Times have, times have changed for sure. Uh, I I went from uh, a mix of speaking and coaching to, to mostly, I think most of my business today is coaching and part of it is speaking now. So mm-hmm. I think one thing we could talk about is probably virtual presentations. I'm sure a lot of people are curious about that. The way that I see it, because I had to adapt as well, is this idea that virtual presentations, you cannot gauge how your audience reacts to you. You cannot see how they react to you. So let's say, for example, you're in an in-person presentation. Let's say we're all in the same room. I say a joke, two things happen. You either laugh at the joke, you go, oh, Brendan's such a funny guy. Or two, more likely, you're going to say, this dude is not funny. This guy (laughs) should not be telling jokes. But regardless, I can see how you're both reacting. But even in a podcast conversation like this, where there's only three people in the room, I actually have no clue how you two are reacting to me because I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at the camera lens directly. Because if I looked at both of you, I'm not looking at the lens anymore. So it doesn't seem like I'm paying attention to what you're saying. And in a Zoom call, when you're in a room with 25 people, 30 people, you can't really pay attention to those little screens everywhere. So the advice is simple. One is what I call the, you get a, basically what I say is just get a bunch of people on a Zoom call that you hate to give you advice on how you look, how you dress, how your hair is, what the lighting is like, and how you speak. And the second thing is imagine the, imper- the perfect in-person audience. So when I did my first podcast interview, I'm just sitting there like, why are a bunch of strangers asking me questions about my life? But then over time, after you you do quite a bit more, the intention that you bring to a podcast is very different. You say, well, I don't know these people, but if they're making a podcast for free, they probably love to add value to people. They're really, really nice folks. So I'm going to assume as if I already know them. That takes time to make a mental shift in that way, but over time you'll get better. But And the last thing I'll say is even if online presentations are harder, than in-person ones, it also creates an amazing opportunity. Because if you practice today and you get really good at communication online, imagine what you'll be like when you go back in person. I never thought of that. I was always in the idea that I would look, because right now I'm not, well, I am looking back at myself, but I'm trying to look more at 
Trisha and Brendan when I'm talking because I do want to see their reactions. Does so that's interesting. Do we do we put what we look like when we present higher up than what the audience's reactions are? That's great. So I, I can't give a clean answer. I think it really depends on the speaker. But for me, the way I think about it, because I'm always presenting the same thing, right? Out of the 900 presentations I've given in my life so far, 400 of them were the same presentation. Mm. So I come in with the assumption that I'm getting the reaction I want. Without because you've looking. practiced that speech right. a lot. Mm. Exactly. So for example, let's say when I say that, you know, when I was giving that little spiel on fear of public speaking, I am making the assumption that you two are getting like, wow, look, this is amazing. Look, so I'm not looking for validation because I've done it a hundred times, right? So I'm just looking at the camera directly and just assuming that I'm executing it. So it really depends. I don't, I don't think there's a right or wrong here. But what I would say to kind of give a, a good answer here is if you're getting started as a speaker, that validation definitely helps to show like what's happening, what's working well, okay, is Trisha actually liking what I'm saying, or she isn't, versus Molly, et cetera. But then over time, if you've done the same presentation a hundred times, then you could focus a lot more on just executing it perfectly. Because you've already gotten that idea of feedback from other people saying, oh, that point does stick, or oh, nope, that story is too long, and things like that. Interesting. That's really helpful. Well, great. So, Trisha, any final thoughts? No, this has all been very insightful and illuminating, but we always like to end each episode with one actionable takeaway for our listeners. So if there's one thing you think people could do to either be better public speakers or better communicators in general, what would that tip be? Absolutely. So, so the, so the, my spin on improv is an exercise they call the random word exercise. So essentially what you do is you pick a random word. I'm happy to demonstrate if you want, but basically what it is is you pick any object in a room and then you make a presentation out of it. Do that five words every day, five minutes. You don't have to move out of your house. You can sit in your, on your mattress all day. But what I will say is if you do this for a year, you'll have done the exercise over 1,800 times. And the other thing I'll say is if you can present – on hippos for a minute and look amazing and confident when you go back to your subject matter expertise to the thing that you spent your life dedicating to and the ideas you love that presentation suddenly becomes a joke so i highly recommend the random word exercise for people yeah of course you can give me any word nail polish sure i was walking in a sephora yesterday and I couldn't stop but think at the different colors that were in the room. Lip gloss, lip brushes, different accessories. But what fascinated me the most were the sales reps in the room. They sold that nail polish so amazingly well that it transformed the very definition that I associated to beauty. What's interesting about the fashion industry is we're always being sold on our lack of, on our insecurities, on the way that we're being sold what we need to be wearing and who we need to be. But in this presentation, I want to share a new and better definition of beauty that does not involve nail polish, but a new way of thinking about life and who you truly are. Boom. That was great. Bravo. <laughs> Fabulous. Have you taken improv classes or no? A bit. I, I probably did like a couple of sessions. I, I think the thing that I really want to push for people is you all have to keep in mind I've done this exercise over 2,000 times. Even when I don't want to do it, 
podcasters force me to do it anyways. <laughs> so the point that I'm driving for people is if you can do this even 10%, 15%, when you go back into your regular presentations, you will feel a lot less anxiety because nail polish is super difficult for a guy like me to do, right? But if I can do that, it it, it creates a mental win in my head that says, if I can do nail polish, what's a couple of questions on public speaking anyways, mm-hmm. right? Fantastic. That's great. Now I want to go try that too. So where can our listeners find you? Of course. So for those who are looking to get better at communication, everybody, check out my YouTube channel, Master Talk in One Word, where I share all of my information out there for free. And if you want to send me a message, get in touch, throw a complaint or an insult down my way, you can message me directly on Instagram. I'm at Master Your Talk. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too.